0: Welcome to the Writing Time podcast. I'm Blake Guthrie from the University of North Florida. I'm here today to continue our journeys through the collected works of Samuel Beckett and Anton Chekhov. Tonight, we'll be looking at Samuel Beckett's short prose, specifically his stories Assumption and Sendento et Quiescendo, uh, which I didn't bother translating before I just pronounced that, which would have been a great idea. Maybe I'll do that in After Effects. Let's begin, (coughs) at any rate, with Assumption. This is Beckett's first published short story, appearing in the Transition magazine in 1929. Oddly enough, it was published alongside James Joyce's work in progress. I'd say it's odd because I'm concurrently reading the works of James Joyce alongside Samuel Beckett and Chekhov for another class at my university. Not that this is the prime medium for exploring such similarities and differences of these Irish-born writers of the 20th century, but it's, it's worth noting for another time at least the story begins. Assumption. He could have shouted and could not. The buffoon in the loft swung steadily on his stick, and the organist sat dreaming with his hands in his pockets. He spoke little, and then, almost huskily, with the low-voiced timidity of a man who shrinks from an argument, who can reply confidently to pawn to King's fourth, but whose faculties are frozen into bewildered suspicion by pawn to Rook's third of the unhappy listener who will, not, who will not face a clash with the vulgar, uncultivated, terribly clear and personal ideas of the unread intelligentsia. He indeed was not such a man, but his voice was of such a man, and occasionally, when he chanced to be interested in a discussion whose noisy violence would have been proof against the most resonant interruption of the beautifully banal kind, he would exercise his remarkable faculty of whispering the turmoil down. This whispering down, like all explosive feats of a kind, was the apogee of Vimy's light parabola, commanding undeserved attention because of its sudden brilliance. The actual imposition of silence by an agent that drifted off itself into silence a few tables away was merely the easy climax of a long series of subtle preparations. All but imperceptible twitches of impatience, smiles artistically suppressed, a swift affection of uninterested detachment all finally produced and thrown into the heat of the conflict so that the most fiercely oblivious combatant could not fail to be neatly and intolerably irritated then when his work had been done and an angry lull was imminent he whispered so I think it's really interesting to look at this this introduction I mean this isn't even the first full paragraph in it, and it is a page and a half Beckett kind of starts out in the middle of the story here. And we get introduced to he without a name. And <coughs> it, I find it really interesting that the way he characterizes this man's timidity and confidence is that he, he is able to confidently reply to pawn to King's fourth. But his faculties are frozen into bewildered suspension by pawn to Rook's third. Now I'm no master of chess, but this seems like a vaguely insincere kind of criticism, or or an almost distinction without a difference in regards to this character. But even if it weren't, and I had proper context to pawn to king's fourth and pawn of rook's third in this game, then there's still some blatant elitism with, especially the the I, I want to say it's satirical on Beckett's behalf, but that the deployment of the word intelligentsia. And I love the prose of the resonant interruption of the beautifully banal kind. I think that that's just a great phrase. And again, with the whispering, we find silence to be a dominating presence in this story. And the line reads, towards the bottom of the first page of this story, The actual imposition of silence by an agent that drifted off itself into silence a few tables away was merely the climax of a long series of subtle preparations. I just think that's a really really cool thing. And again, a long series of subtle preparations. This is quite quite evocative. The story continues. As with all artists, this casting of an effect in the teeth of his audience was the least difficult part of his business. He had been working hard for the last half hour, and no one had seen him. That long chain of inspired gesture had been absorbed consciously by every being within the wide orbit of his control, and accepted as normal and spontaneous. To avoid the expansion of the commonplace is not enough. The highest art reduces significance in order to obtain that inexplicable bombshell perfection. Before no supreme manifestation of beauty do we proceed comfortably up a staircase of sensation and sit down mildly on the topmost stair to digest our gratification? Such is the pleasure of prettiness. We are taken up bodily and pitched breathless on the peak of the sheer crag, which is the pain of beauty. Just as the creative artist must be partially illusionist, our whispering prestigiator was partly artist. A member of the Browning Society would say that he played on the souls of men as on an instrument, a unanimist that he imposed his personality on a group. But we must be careful not to imply that the least apostolic fervor colored what it was at its worst, the purely utilitarian contrivance of a man who wished to gain himself a hearing, and, at its best, an amused experiment in applied psychology. In the silence of his room, he was afraid, afraid of that wild, rebellious surge that aspired violently towards realization in sound. Hmm... Let's look back at what we just read. I think what's really cool here is the discussion of artists. And he says, The highest art reduces significance in order to obtain that inexplicable bombshell perfection. Furthermore, before no supreme manifestation of beauty do we proceed comfortably up a staircase of sensation. The idea of art and beauty here, I think, are just really powerfully represented, even if I don't agree, but the meditations that Beckett provides, when they appear, are always interesting. But again, let's re-enter that next paragraph with the imposition of silence, and that silence which provokes fear. In the silence of his room, he was afraid, afraid of that wild, rebellious surge that aspired violently towards realization and sound. He felt its implacable caged resentment, its longing to be released in one splendid drunken scream and fused with the cosmic discord. Its struggle for divinity was as real as his own and as futile. If he wondered if the power which, having denied him the conscious completion of the meanest mongrel, bade him forget his fine imperfection beside it in the gutter, ever trembled at the force of his result. Meanwhile, that flesh-locked sea of silence achieved a miserable consummation in the driblets of sound as each falling leaf saps the painful vigor of a tree in cruelly wickedness autumn. The process was absurd, extravagantly absurd, like boiling an egg over a bonfire. But in his case, it was not a willful extravagance. He felt compassion as well as fear. He dreaded lest his prisoner should escape. He longed that it might escape. It tore at his throat and he choked it back in dread and sorrow. Fear breeds fear. He began to have a horror of unexpected pain, of sleep, of anything that might remove the involuntary inhibition. He drugged himself that he might sleep heavily, silently. He scarcely left his room, scarcely spoke, thus denying even that rare transmutation on the rising, tossing soundlessness that seemed now to rend his whole being with the violence of its effort. He felt he was losing, playing into the hands of the enemy by the severity of his restrictions. By damming the stream of whispers, he had raised the level of the flood, and he knew the day would come when it would no longer be denied. Still, he was silent in silence listening for the first murmur of the torrent that must destroy him. At this moment, the woman came to him. So I think the meditations on silence here are pretty cool. Um, Silence in Beckett is something that's really powerful. It's a motif, but it, it just, whenever silence comes, there's two things that you can be sure to surround it. One, a fear of death or an actual death, and, on the other hand, memory. And then I also like the the phrase here, one splendid drunken scream. I just think that's charming. Furthermore, the the meditations on power that he gives here are pretty cool too. Uh, He wondered if the power which, having denied him the conscious completion of the meanest mongrel, bade him forget his imperfection beside it in the gutter, ever trembled at the force of his revolt interesting. And then two phrases that follow immediately. The flesh-locked sea of silence into a miserable consummation. I love it. Well, I mean, as much as you can love a miserable consummation and a flesh-locked sea of silence. And then the discussion of the tree here is pretty cool, too. Hmm. The absurd fear as each falling leaf saps the painful vigor of a tree in cruelly windless autumn. And I misspoke in my first reading. Um, If we continue to the end um, in the next paragraph, the story continues with the narrator continuing to wander around between interiority and exteriority, and then discussing the woman that we ended that previous paragraph with. He was listening in the dusk when she came, listening so intently that he did not hear her enter. From the door, she spoke to him, and he winced at the regularity of her clear, steady speech. It was the usual story, vulgarly told. Admiration for his genius, sympathy with his suffering, only a woman could understand. He clenched his hands in a fury against the enormous impertinence of woman. Their noisy, intrusive, curious enthusiasm. Like the spontaneous expression of admiration bursting from the American hearts before Michelangelo's tomb in Santa Cruz. The voice, droned down, wavered, stopped. He sketched a tired gesture of acceptation and prepared to withdraw once more within that terrifying silent immobility. She turned on the light and advanced carelessly into the room. An eruption of demons would not have scattered his intentness so utterly. She sat down before him at the table and leaned forward with her jaws and the cups of her hand. He looked at her venomously and was struck, in spite of himself, by the extraordinary pallor of her lips, of which the lower protruded slightly and curled upwards contemptuously to express to compress the upper, resulting in a faintly undershot local sensuality which went strangely with the extreme cold purity stretching sadly from the low broad brow to the closed nostrils. He thought of George Meredith and recovered something of his calm. The eyes were so deeply set as to be almost cavernous. The light falling on the cheekbones threw them back into a misty shadow. In daylight they were strange, almost repulsive, deriving a pitiless penetration from the rim of white showing naturally above the green-flecked pupil. Now as she leaned forward beneath the light, they were pools of obscurity. She wore a close-fitting hat of faded green felt thought he had never seen such charming shabbiness. Wow, what a woman. When at last she went away, he felt that something had gone out from him, something he could not spare, but still could grudge, something of the desire to live, something of the unreasonable tenacity with which he shrank from dissolution. So each evening, in contemplation and absorption of this woman, he lost a part of his essential animality so that the water rose, terrifying him. Still, he fought on all day, hopelessly, mechanically, only relaxing with twilight, to listen for her, upcoming to loosen yet another stone in the clumsy dam set up and sustained by him, frightened and corruptible. Until at last... For the first time, he was unconditioned by the satanic dimensional trinity. He was released, achieved, the blue flower, Vega, God. Here we arrive at something which is the heart of our concerns here at the Writing Time podcast. The question of how time passes in literature. And here I'll read to the end of the penultimate paragraphs. After a timeless parenthesis, he found himself alone in this room, spent with ecstasy, torn by the bitter loathing of that which he had condemned to the humanity of silence. Thus each night he died and was God, each night revived and was torn, torn and battered with increasing grievousness so that he hungered to be irretrievably engulfed in the light of eternity— one with the birdless, cloudless, colorless skies in infinite fulfillment. The idea of timeless parentheses is a fantastic formulation on Beckett's behalf. And then what he says about God, he died each night and was God. And then the formulation of the light of eternity, which is beautiful. Let's finish the story. Then it happened. While the woman was contemplating the face that she had overlaid with death, she was swept aside by a great storm of sound, shaking the very house with its prolonged, triumphant vehemence, climbing in a dizzy, bubbling scale until, dispersed, it fused into the breath of a forest and throbbing cry of a sea. They found her caressing his wild, dead hair. So, (coughs) this first story for tonight's episode some amazing bits. And I don't even know what I could say about this. But apart from the things that I mentioned in between. So, I mean, for example, I have a lot underlined, a lot marked, a lot with asterisks and highlighters and everything. But the words I have circled, I think, are interesting. (coughs) Silence, artists, silence, power, absurd, fear, silence, light, timeless parentheses, light, death. And I tend to circle words like this when they're kind of aphoristically written about these ideas. I mean, for example, if you look, I mean the process was absurd, extravagantly absurd, like boiling an egg over a bonfire. Like like what a good way to visualize and, and keep in mind what the absurd is. I circle words when they see when they seem I don't know, like you want to keep them for a while. But I mean, we've already been going for a little bit of time and and as much as I would like to go into the, some analysis here, um, let, let's move on just a little bit to the second story. <coughs> and here, the second story I'd like to explore this week Again, it's called Sedendo et Quiescendo, and I'm sure I'm butchering that. But um, the second story I'd like to explore this week is not going to be spent like with that previous story, kind of in, in reading and analysis mode. Rather, I'd like to examine the percussiveness of Beckett's prose in this story. And I suppose before I go into this section of the podcast, I should preface it by saying that I don't intend to make this a regular feature. I'm just going to attempt to deliver the prose like it was written to be rap. This comes about because I've been writing rap quite a bit recently, inspired in large part by the Hamilton musical. Ever since I started writing my own rap verses, I can't help but read sentences with a bit of rhythm underneath them. And so, without any further ado, here's just one instance in the story of language, d- of Becketts being begged to be penned down. Sheath within a sheaf and a missing sword, not forgetting that this was the suit that he had bought for the next to nothing from a left-handed indivisible individual with a charitable desire to for- justify his fatigue. He was forced his right hand down past the craggy coxa into the garrery gallant depths and fished up a fifty a cigarette quick for the cheekbones. And he thought the ticket handy there in the breast of my reefer in the heavy valise to snatch him skillfully detached and extenuated into the love glue and smoke after it was nearly good and my son de café at last, but love it. <coughs> Again, not a very flattering or impressive kind of rap, but hopefully you can hear the rhythm with which he r- is writing in this section. This is going to be even worse, so if you didn't enjoy that, um, Sorry. Smeraldine, Narima, and anything that comes in handy for short. He handed her into the cab of the wagon, and with this charming deep blue point zoster, he can spoke and addressed and confidently at uh, the chauffeur, Who but a moment previously thought to light a cigarette, and who now naturally was in no humor to start his engine and set off, but he was not slow to yield to the promising accent of the young Taurus, whose fiber-heavy case he hoisted vigorously on the board and left beside him, clipping his head intact. Over the between his rubbery helix and hypertrophied mastoid process, gratified in a dialogue doubtless, his nearest colleague's, with no doubt was a passionate Hessian epigram. Set his machine angrily in motion, suffering with the kind of hopeless interest in refracted deportment of his clients. Down with the cobbled avenue, thin of bitter Christmas trees, trembling in many and many a shadow, stasis between the tram and sidewalk, suburb wagon ran between the spire that eliminates an impeccable imperial alignment, the now dim height of Hercules and the meager crusade, sullen. An abandoned dropping, but that was it because the bloody well had to, down with the choke channel of the whole Zolan Rocal. Snow-clad, but the castle, bloke is sentimental. Belacroix took her hand and drew it down upon the skirted. Nearly thigh joy through the fingers, all the same, he inquires. Where did you get that hat? I almost helmet that. And so, I'm making the dog bark because I'm rapping so bad. That's wonderful. Uh, and for the purposes of this episode, if that dog is not being picked up in the mic, then this will be the last little section of, of Beckett's uh, second story that I would like to give a little bit of a rap tinge to I once wrote a poem on him, or to him, carved from the lecherous lay priest, the magic code, and if I don't forget, I'll have the good taste to use the little ducky diver for a kind of contrapuntal compensation. Do you comprehend me, and in deference to your basam pensions, for the literary stress and strain? Well, you really know, in spite of the heracot skull, and a tendency to use up my odds and ends of pigment that might be possibly left over, and that was the thing he was living spit. Yeah, maybe I'm just reading into this. But even if I'm not, I think this would be fun for someone who's actually decent at rap to attempt because I could point you to the story, I could point you to the passages, but I can only do so much with my own delivery. Not to mention I'm having a sore throat today. But um, returning to our crux of focus, that was just about everything I wanted to say in regards to Beckett this week. Who knows? Maybe I'll do some more of these things in the future. It depends on the material. It depends on the response. It depends on all the things beyond my scope of control. But what is in my control, before we depart, is me returning to a saying in Stoicism, a philosophy that is always vitally aware of time and its implications for our own lives and impending mortality. Don't make things harder than they need to be. Marcus Aurelius. If someone asks you how to write your name, would you bark out each letter and if they get angry, would you then return the anger? Wouldn't you rather gently spell out each letter for them? So then, remember in life that your duties are the sum of individual acts. Pay attention to each of these as you do your duty. Just methodically complete your task. And so, that is the attitude in which I've approached this podcast especially this week because I've been running behind and I haven't been able to sit here and write out scripts like I really would like to and make this podcast the thing that I think it can be there's a lot of material here but between the three grad school classes that I'm currently steeping myself in and two jobs this is quite the time-consuming endeavor I haven't edited a single podcast yet so I don't know how good or bad they are and I haven't been able to really review the audio quality I just hear it in my headphones and say okay that's decent enough who knows And my analysis has been paltry. The content that I've been delving into has not been great. But following the staying of Stoicism, it's better better to do it and do it badly than not do it. Because that's still worse. As Marcus Aurelius says, just methodically complete your task. And I'd like to pass that along. Maybe this week isn't your best. Maybe this week feels overwhelming. I've just I'm on the tail end of what I'm calling hell week. I think that's something we can all deal with at some point and I wish you all the best in in methodically completing your tasks. So until next time, I'm Blake Guthrie, your host. You've been listening to the Writing Time podcast. Stay curious.